This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. You're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast, presented by Scree Gear, performance hunting apparel, performance layering system, and Christmas is upon us. It's Christmas season, and I can tell you that personally, I ordered a few pieces of Scree Gear as a Christmas present for someone, and I ordered that on either Monday or Tuesday, and it arrived today. So... Obviously, the shipping industry is difficult, and direct-to-consumer businesses uh, are a slave to that during this time of the year, but I still think if you order now, if you order over the weekend or early next week, you still have a great chance of getting your gear in before Christmas, if that's what you're up to, or just before that New Year's hunting season. I know so many of us stay at the camp and do a lot of hunting during this time of the year. Remember, you can use the code LABH for 20% off of your first purchase on regular priced items. And there's still lots of sales going on for the end of the year. So check them out. Follow them online, social media, and find out more about the gear. Do all the stuff that they post. Check them out and shop online at screegear.com. And we want to remind you also at Louisiana Bowhunter that we're going to give away a set of Louisiana Bowhunter gear to someone on Christmas. And the way you get into that is if you've purchased any Scree gear this year, send us a message, send us an email at info at louisianabowhunter.com, your name, your location, what gear you bought, and give us a review that we can share with them so that they can continue to produce some of the best products that we've used and uh, we can keep supporting them 
And, uh, again, just send us a message, positive, negative, whatever you have to say. If you've purchased gear, your name and location, we'll draw a random winner from those submissions on Christmas. So, Kyler, uh, I've heard you talk about the straw man argument. That's been brought up on this this podcast a couple times. Straw man fallacy. The straw man fallacy, okay? So, here's where I'm going with this. Today... I, on a Facebook hunting group, and not ours, not the Louisiana Ooh, Bowhunter community. Did you get in an argument on the internet? I did not get in an argument. I, I didn't. Oh, damn it. I mean, I posted my thought, which was very simply, that's the straw man argument at its finest. At its finest. And that's all I said, and I didn't respond beyond that. So I'm not going to, speci- you know, the uh, arguing on the internet's like the Special, Olympic, uh, Special Olympics. But, um, <laughs> but... But here's here's my thing. So someone posted a this is on another hunting group on Facebook. They posted a screenshot of a news clipping post of someone in another state that killed a nice buck, and it was a unique situation where the buck had a a, a collar on where it was part of a study at some point, and uh, you know biologists were following the steer around, and um, in that. The deer was killed eight miles away from where it was collared. So the news clipping was just simply like, wow, this is pretty unique. Someone to kill a mature buck like this eight miles from where um, it had been collared and had been being studied. And in my mind, that is pretty unique. That's worthwhile of somebody posting it somewhere out there like, hey, listen, check this out. This is a pretty cool story. It's a cool story because it just it's not normal. It's not normal for a mature buck to be eight miles from his home range. And so, therefore, it's newsworthy. But this person posted it as a way to present the argument and debate with all of his fellow members of this group, and I'm assuming people that hunt around him, that you ought not be passing bucks because all them bucks you're passing are just going to go eight miles away and get shot by somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... Well, 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 yeah, and in that case, that would be more like, treating the outlier like the norm yeah right so i spent a few minutes trying to come up i felt like there was another term for this other than straw man fallacy but straw man fallacy was the only one i could find that that fit it and you know basically what it is is using the exception as your proof for debate Mm -hmm. rather than um using logic that hey, this is not a reason to debunk the theory. This is an exception. It's kind of like if you're sitting around watching a football game with your buddies and Coach X decides to throw a 50-yard bomb from his own 30 on fourth down and they convert it and they win the game and you say, look, that's what every football team should do on fourth down from their own 30 because it worked. Well, no. Mm -hmm. 99% of the times if you do that, it's going to cause you to lose the game, not win the game. But in that case, we're, it just happened to work. We did that. Well, LSU did that against Kentucky in like 2008 or something. What was it called? The Bluegrass the Miracle. miracle. The, yeah, Bluegrass Bluegrass Miracle. I'm not much of a football guy, but but that yeah, exa- that's like saying there's a high percentage on the last play of the game. You should do that, and you can win. Yeah, you know that, that I think, and that yeah. It it just it, it, it to me it's it's more like saying why would you ever punt the football? Why do people do that? Because this play right here proves that you shouldn't do that. You should just go for it when yeah. everybody knows that that's an exception 
not the rule. My point is, don't do that. It makes you look stupid. You yeah, know. I've been a professional troller and bullshitter of the internet for quite a long time, and finally, I just got too busy to to do it. And but I but I also I typically was trying to bait people into looking like fools, um, not not like taking hard stance and like trying to convince people that X Y Z is the truth in this outlier situation. That was never something that I came out and did. Yeah. But I don't. I don't play with that stuff much anymore, man. I kind of miss it. Well, you know, I don't. I, I try not to engage in it because there's nowhere positive that it's going to go. And yeah, never, never goes anywhere. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the thing about it for me is something like this stands out to me because the conversation or the topic, better said, of deer management and you know hunting ethics and practices and the debate that happens within the hunting community about how we should hunt and how we should all get along and all that stuff is kind of a, it, it's a stressful anxiety filled thing that carries, um, a lot of tension with it and a lot of emotion and it creates, you know, an unfavorable atmosphere in too many ways. And so when you do something like that and anybody is willing to be like, okay, dude, either one, you're really dumb and you don't, have you know you don't have much sense about you or two you're being a real douche by trying to like use this as a debate to just argue the point that you want to shoot whatever you want to shoot and your neighbors are stupid for passing deer and it it's just it it it's the kind of thing to me that just it just i don't know i like i said i'm not going to engage in it but i couldn't help but post something because i'm like this is so dumb <laughs> all you're trying to do is just look for a reason to to you know um call somebody out because you want to shoot whatever you want and they don't want you to shoot whatever you want and it's yeah. just not a good argument anyway i don't know if that's the way to open this podcast <laughs> but it's been on my mind since i read it today well, uh, i was going to say after the scree intro that I've got, um, I've actually got a, a pair of the ptarmigan pants on the way. Um, I I had I, I I ordered the hard scrabble jacket along with a bunch of other stuff at the beginning of the season. It was back ordered. It came back in stock at the beginning of November, and I, I got it in. And it's a very nice jacket, but I did I I already had another jacket that was just very similar to it, so it was it was kind of redundant for me to keep it. So I sent it back. I paid the difference for the ptarmigan pants. Um, and, uh, I almost, I almost went with the guardian, like jacket or the guardian bibs, but I've, I, I like for me in the stand, my legs get cold. Like, I, I don't want to be in the, the game anymore. I don't want to play, you know? Um, and so I, I, I've been, especially late. Se- I thought about it a lot late season, like December, rut, January, um, I'm not walking very far anymore. I'm typically paddling. And um, and so the ptarmigan pant, even though they're really, really warm, because it's, you know, goose down pants, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I can get away with that because sometimes I'll paddle a half a mile or a mile, and I won't be burning up by the time I get to the stand like I can if, if I'm walking that far. Um, and then this last weekend we had a little cold front, my buddy Watson was at the camp and he had a, a 1200 yard walk and he was talking about something about like getting hot on the way in. And I was like, dude, do you, do you not take 
do you not walk in in your long johns with your pants and your jacket on your back? And he was like, he looked at me like I had six eyes. And I was like, I'm not kidding. You've got to do this. It's the way. It's yes. the way you, yeah, it's, yes. it's how, like if you've got a long walk in 30 degree temps, walk in in your long johns um, or your base layers. You'll war- You'll probably be cold at the truck. You'll be 100 yards in, you'll start to warm up. By the time you get there, you'll be like perfect. And then I usually stop 100 yards or so from my stand, put all my stuff on, and I'll climb the tree. So anyway, I'm excited about the ptarmigan pants because um, I've already got the jacket. And um, it's. I think it gets here tomorrow. I'm pretty pumped about it. I, uh, so, I got mine. Back in November, when they first, uh, I guess they first uh, got got them in stock and whatnot. And I've only had a couple of opportunities to wear them because, for a whole nother topic, our weather has been absolute crap. <laughs> yeah, that's the and, next thing we need to talk about. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I mean, even my hunt in the Midwest, it wasn't bad. It wasn't as bad as it was last year, but there was only a couple of sits where it was, you know, cold. I mean, it was mm-hmm. it was never really cold, cold, uh, not all day long anyway. And uh, but you know, I mean, the best way I can explain it, and and I think it's gonna be great for you because it it does roll up in the little stuff sack just like the jacket does, so that's easy to pack. And then I mean, it's just like a pair of rain pants. I mean, that's how they fit. That's how they wear. The the only difference being are like the scree rain pants and, and other rain pants that I've had, they don't have a fly and a button. They're completely sealed around the waist. You know, it's just a, the you know, kind of a stretchy waist with a, a waist. These actually do have a button and a fly zip, which actually makes them open up a little bit easier. But they, they zip all the way up the side. So, I mean, to you know, like you're saying, you get you out of your – ventilation when walking, yeah. You could do that or, I mean, they're so easy to just slip on and zip down the leg. You could slip them on when you get out of the boat or, you know, when you make that stop. Right before you get into where you're going to hang your stand, you just stop, slip them on. Um, you know, I actually put them on in the tree. One of the times I've worn them this year, I just waited till I started to cool off and pulled them out of the little sack and, you know, unzipped the legs and stood up and zipped the legs down. And it's just like it's just like slipping yeah. on rain gear, you know. So, yeah, it's. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think you're going to like them. You're going to. I mean, it's just it's um just like the jacket. You know, it's uh. It's a supreme insulator. When it gets to when it when it, I mean you know a duck or a goose, those suckers live a pretty tough life on the water in the freezing cold. You know that if there's anything that will tell you exactly the the quality of of uh, of what can keep you warm and what can insulate, there's nothing better than down. Yeah. And if you wear well, that, I, I'm a, I've just been I've been so impressed impressed by the jacket, man. That. Um, I mean, it, it really is my, my go-to jacket. Yeah. Um, I, I absolutely love it. Um, well, there's, uh, one other thing that I'm kind of excited to, I guess you could say tell or talk about whatever. Um, we've never mentioned this before, but <clears throat> you and I have never actually hunted together. No, we have ever. <laughs> nope. <laughs> uh, you, we're, you know, we've, I think you've been at Levi's the week before I was at Levi's and we crossed paths and um you know you hunt in mississippi a good bit and uh, i'm publicly a guy and blah 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 but we've never for, for no particular reason we've never made a hunt together well you're coming up to my camp this weekend yeah. and i'm going to take you on a public land adventure filled with spikes uh hogs and um 
and maybe even a couple of um, bucks that will be sure to not be uh, impressive. Well, so, I'm, I'm excited. I'm I'm pretty pumped about it too because um, we talked about this a couple different times. How I've as of last year, I've kind of gotten more into the mobile setup. Uh, still don't yeah. hunt out of a saddle, but um, I've got me a mobile lock on setup, and I've used it a good bit. I used it a really uh, a lot in January last year, and I've used it a few times this year. I haven't a whole lot. Um, I killed one deer out of it on my trip to the Midwest. The other deer was in a um, a set stand, but I'm excited to do that. I'm excited to 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 share camp and and all that kind of stuff too. And let me tell you something else I'm excited about. I'm excited that it's actually supposed to be the kind of weather that it's that we expect in December and January mm-hmm. in the South. I'm excited to go hunting and actually feel like I'm hunting <laughs> in December and not like yeah. I'm hunting the second week of October. You yeah. know, it, it's yeah. I will say this. The only thing that this weather has afforded me thus far is the opportunity to finish my building that I've been working on for a month because I can't seem <laughs> to make myself uh <laughs> Like I don't want to go sit and uh, and uh, sweat and just mess my hair. And not only that, but um, I I don't know if you do this. I think most people probably do this. Like when it when it comes to preseason and then early in the season, and you're kind of prepping and you're thinking about how the season's going to unfold. I think we just naturally look for north wind spots because that's what we're expecting is to hunt those fronts. Oh, sure, and, yeah, absolutely. and so. When it does this, like it's done for the last three weeks, it's like I don't, I don't really have anywhere to hunt because yeah. I've got a handful of spots that I can kind of get away. I don't have anything that's strictly set up to hunt a south wind. And I've got a few spots where, well, if I convince myself maybe I could hunt a deer that might be coming from this direction. I got, but it's just not enough to encourage me and make me want to do it. You well, know, the southwind spots this late season are frustrating because, for me, because they're prim- primarily feed tree food source spots, mm-hmm. and they're all dried up with not a leaf left on the tree. And so, for me to start looking for like travel route, pinch point type, possibly rut or thick thicket spots with a south wind is like it's just not it's not a preference, not not no. preferable for me. So the um, I, I, go ahead. I tell you what was was. <laughs> It was so it's so hot right now that I had a Christmas party at my house last night for my employees. It's just like a you know get together and I gave them their bonuses and and you know just got drunk and played games and hung out for a couple hours. It's like twelve of us total with husbands and wives, and um, it was so hot <laughs> that I I I had I had to have a fire like a fireplace fire. It feels like a holiday and, party. It's a, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're all like invest in the like nice, you know, Christmas dresses and stuff. Not obviously, but not me, but the girls. <laughs> and so I'm like, we've got to have, we've got to have a fireplace going, fire going. And so you know, it feels ridiculous lighting a fire at 77 degrees. So like, we turn the AC down to 65 <laughs> so that we can start, start a fire <laughs> in this fireplace. It's, it was just ridiculous, man. I'm like, dude, this is this feels like Thanksgiving. Doesn't feel like Christmas or a week before Christmas. I don't know if you follow our friends at 180 Outdoors on social media, but if you do, you've probably noticed just how successful Whitetail season has been for them in Kansas, and if 
you didn't draw a Kansas tag, if you missed out, if it's something you've been wanting to do, the 2022 whitetail schedule will be up on the website soon. Spring turkey hunting is listed on the website now, and they have a great January late season waterfowl hunt package new for this year, some brand new properties that haven't been hunted that are set up. It's going to be an awesome time. There's still some spots remaining. You can check all of that out at hunt180.com. Your Southeast Kansas connection, if you're looking for guided hunts, semi-guided hunts, lease property, or even if you're looking to purchase your own property in that area of the world, 180 Outdoors, nobody does it better. Your Southeast Kansas hunting connection, hunt180.com. So. <laughs> so I've got one. So we uh, our guest our guest for t- today's podcast is Slade Priest, the Hunting Land Man. You hear him advertise on our podcast, and he's been on the podcast a long time ago, back in like season one when when he first got into the recreational hunting mm-hmm. land real estate business. So we're gonna we're gonna visit with him. I got one more story to tell you before we get to Slade. So I sent you a text this afternoon about uh, with a screenshot of me texting with my son while he was hunting yeah so yeah, really, yeah. you know he just turned 13 he killed the deer he killed that i'm sure some of you've probably seen the video on, on screes youtube he he killed his first deer with a bow back in uh late october it was the day before halloween and um he turned 13 since then and we, we're fortunate enough to live out in the country and and there's a little patch of hardwoods behind our house uh we own a, a little bit of it but um and essentially, he's got a, a ladder stand set up back there. It's probably 200 yards from the house, 75 yards off of our actual yard. And um, he, he throws a little corn out there, and he's got a camera running. So he checked his camera the other day, and there's like three different bucks because there's been about eight or nine does there all the time. And they're the same ones we see around the house, around the yard. And um, so I kept telling him, you just hold tight, man. You know, when the rut gets closer, there's going to be some bucks coming here checking on those does. And uh, sure enough, he checked his camera the other day, and uh, or just yesterday, day before yesterday, and there was three different rack bucks that have shown up in the daylight, you know, just sniffing around oh, the man. area. And uh, one of them's a none of them are big, but for a thirteen year old, they're they're all nice. <laughs> and um, yeah. you know, you know, full rack. One of them's probably fifteen inches wide, little eight point, and a couple others. So he got all excited. So he asked me last night. He said, "Daddy, you got some of that doe pee stuff?" I'm thinking. I'm going to go hunting tomorrow, and I'd like to spray some on my boots so when I walk to my stand, maybe that'll help. And I'm like, yeah, buddy, you know, I'm, I'm thinking you need to try everything you can think of and learn what works and what doesn't work because the, the best way he can learn is on those hunts when he's by himself and he makes mistakes and he has to figure out what happened for himself. And he sure. can't rely on me to figure it out for him, you know. That's the best way to learn. I know that's how I learned. So we go out in the garage, and I have an open garage now. It's not enclosed. But I have the open garage, and you know those those spray cans of doe estrus that, like, mist? Mm-hmm. So if, mm-hmm. you, if you push the button down hard enough, it, like, sticks, and it just all blows out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I have a couple of those cans. I, buy, I usually try to buy, like, five or six of them at a time. So I have some throughout the year. And I usually just spray them on my boots and just kind of mist them in the air throughout my hunt. And I kind of use it as a cover scent this time of the year because I kind of tell myself it's not so much a lure, but that's that scent should be prevalent in the woods kind of thing. So I'm like, all right, well, here's what you're going to do. So we walk out of my office out into the garage. And I'm like, and I'm going to show him like, look, you just need to kind of, you know, just a couple little squirts on your boots. You don't want to do too much. And I push the thing down and it sticks and it starts just blasting everywhere. I mean, it's just <laughs> the whole garage is like a fog 
of dough of oh, dough no. estrus, and I can't get it to stop. And I'm holding it in one hand, and I'm trying to hold it out away from me. And he's like, "What's going on?" And the dog is like all excited because the dog's like, "Whoa, what is this?" You know. And I'm like digging <laughs> through my toolbox trying to find a flathead screwdriver, and I finally get it in there and get it turned off. And the whole garage is a fog of dough piss, estrus oh, dough piss, no, man. and it's like raining all down on us, you know. And I'm like, "Damn it." You know, so we go in the house, <laughs> and my my wife is sitting there watching TV, and she she's never really gained her smell back from COVID. So I'm like, hey, I don't say anything. I was like, hey, go go walk over there, talk to your mama. And he walks over there, and she's. I was like, do you smell anything? Because I can smell it, and he can smell it, and but we don't know if it's in our nose or if it's on our clothes. You know, and um, <laughs> she's like, I can't smell anything. So I call my younger son down from upstairs, and I'm like, hey, come here. And he's like, what, what, what are you doing? And I'm like, just come here. I'm like, smell my shirt. And he, he smells it, he starts gagging. And I'm like, okay, yeah, it's, it's all over us for sure. So we both have to, like, strip down, put our clothes in the wash, take a shower. Well, it is officially 7.25 the night. It's probably 24 hours later, and my whole garage still smells like oh, you sure. just sprayed dough estrus all over it. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm going to wake up in the morning, there's going to be a buck making a scrape out in my backyard. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's, that's awful, man. That's a, that's a nightmare of mine. I, I've, I've, uh, I washed a, a bottle of Tink 69 once, and I could hear it clanking in the, in the dryer. This is many years ago. Oh, no. And, 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 I, and I, I could hear it, dunk, 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 you know, going around. And I was like, is that now go over there start going to my pockets and it didn't burst oh you got so lucky but at at that moment i was like praying and and be like god i will i will do anything like (laughs) thank you so much (laughs) you know like i I, you just saved me money from a divorce you know and new dryer new dryer yeah but i know that there see that stuff i don't use much of that stuff um uh, at all Mainly because I think it's just like playing with fire. I think I like it doesn't yeah. matter what it doesn't matter what brand doesn't matter how it's contained. It doesn't matter if it's aerosol or a drip bottle or, or, mm-hmm. or just a glass bottle. You're gonna you're gonna get burned by that stuff one day. Absolutely, like it will it will go off, break, shatter, or you'll forget it in your pocket and wash your clothes. Uh, and you're right. I don't. It's gonna don't, happen. And I and I number honestly, one reason. I honestly could we could do a whole podcast on stories about stupid shit that oh, I've done sure. with Doesters because I've I, I use it a pretty good bit like I said as a cover this time of the year and I've done some stupid stuff but yeah let's not um let's not make Slade wait any longer our guests every week are brought to you by our friend Brian Chamberlain the Chamberlain Lending Team with Movement Mortgage and if you're in need of a residential loan primary or secondary vacation investment, cash out, rate reduction, renovation for add-ons, any of these kind of needs, contact Brian. Nobody does better. Low credit scores, potentially 0% down, and the movement mortgage, 42% of their profits go towards charitable organizations through the Movement Foundation, and that sets them apart. Brian is licensed in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, NMLS number 114586, and Movement Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, NMLS ID number 39179. Slade Priest, the hunting land man, 
joins us on the podcast. Um, I'm sure that those of you that listen have heard us advertising. So uh, for, for Slade and, and what he does, Slade, how's it going, man? Doing fine, man. Yeah, I sure hope that. I hope they heard the advertisement, man. Everything's going pretty good. Just enjoying this beautiful spring weather in December. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I don't recall. I know that this, like in the hunting camp community, so to speak, uh, social media and beyond, the weather gets talked about all the time, and and everybody complains, and we kind of exaggerate because we all get aggravated when the weather does this and we exaggerate year after year, but I'm really not sure that we've had a year that's been quite this bad. It really isn't. I mean, I can summarize it like this. My wife asked me yesterday, she said, when are you going to go hunting, hunting land, man? And it kind of, it, it kind of stuck with me. And, you know, whenever I, I can judge deer movement, I, I live on a nice little track of land here right outside of Centerville, Mississippi. And I can judge deer movement by my driveway i've got a big field and a feeder in the front yard and when you pull in and there's two deer in the field when on a good day there's 15 it kind of tells you everything you need to know yeah i I told kyler in the intro a while ago i've been building a a storage building in my my yard for basically since i came back from the midwest in november and about the only thing this has been good for is i've gotten that done because i haven't felt like going hunting so i've got plenty of time (laughs) to get out there and work because it's just it's it's bad so tell us give us a rundown of how I, I know you you just kind of alluded to the fact it's hard to make yourself hunt but i know i've seen you posting on social media some i know you've hunted some how's your season going so far man it's going good it's been different this is you know 37 basically been hunting you know 31 years um this has been a different season and let me tell you why first of all with life you know, uh, we're busy with kids, and I've got three now. Um, my little boy did kill his uh, first deer this year. He killed uh, – it's a pretty cool story, actually. So my son killed not, – not his first deer. He killed his first buck this year. Two years ago, he killed a doe, and then he killed a turkey. And then last year, man, he, he just wasn't into it that much, and it kind of, you know, broke my heart a little bit. And I was just patient. Hey, if he doesn't want to deer hunt, that's fine. As long as he appreciates outdoors, he loves eating deer meat, milk meat. And then this summer, I guess maybe he's nine now. His friends have killed some deer. I think that kind of peer pressure got to him. He said, Dad, I want to kill my first buck. And I was like, inside, I was like, oh, yeah, here we go. So, um, you know, and, and I thought about it. And, look, I'm a huge proponent of deer management. I mean, look, if he ain't four or five years old, not interested in shooting him on anywhere that I hunt. But this was going to be a little different. You know, Bentley is not ate up with it. So we got in the stand about 500 yards in front of my front door of my house. And going into it, I said, look, we're not waiting on one of my shooters. If he sees something he wants to shoot and it makes him excited, that's what I want to happen. It's natural. It's how all of us started our deer hunting. And that's what I wanted to happen. I didn't want to, oh, there's a buck daddy and then not shoot. And sure enough, it wasn't but just a little while. A two-year-old eight-point came out, and I said, there's a buck right there, Bentley. He said, what is he? I said, he's an eight-point. I said, you want to wait on a bigger one, or you want to bust him? I want to bust him, Daddy. And sure enough, he busted him, went and got my little girl out of the uh, out of the house. We all tracked him with my dog I'm training. So it was a cool family event, and now he's all excited because he gets to eat the deer he killed and put uh, 
a skull mount on his wall. And that was his big thing. He wanted something for his wall for his room. So that was probably the Hi. highlight of my season thus thus far. Yeah, it's and uh go ahead. I say that it's all I, I got to experience something similar myself with my older son this year and, and it is it's a special a special event. And uh, then now my deer, I, I kill, I've killed two good bucks this year. Uh, opening week, I ended up shooting a doe, and then I killed a uh, about a, I think it was one thirty four, a big eight point right here um, in Southwest Mississippi, three miles from my house on a place I hunt. And the deer was seven years old. Uh, we knew him well. I got four years of pictures of him. My landowner I hunt on actually wounded the deer last year, so really cool. Probably, you know, as proud of that deer as any deer I've ever killed. He was 19 inches wide, just a big, pretty. I mean, for for basically Norwood, Louisiana deer, he was a, he was a fine deer, good pope and young buck. And then I killed uh, right after Thanksgiving, I killed a right at 170 inch mule deer in West Texas. Yes, they have fair chase mule deer in West Texas. First day of the hunt, first afternoon, I uh, saw him that morning, and these deer were coming uh, coming and getting some feed before they were going out into the big wheat fields, and a uh, really cool hunt, and a uh, 300-pound animal with the bow was, was pretty cool, and I got to shoot him twice. I shot him one lung liver, and he ran out there and laid down like less than 10 yards from me, and I got to shoot him again, so it's always fun to shoot a big buck once, but definitely fun to shoot him <laughs> twice. So what's your setup? What's your setup? Like, as far as what are you shooting, bow, arrow, broadhead-wise? Well, you know, uh, I changed some things up. I'm shooting the Expedition MX-16. Uh, I'm shooting their last year bow. This is actually the first year in who maybe 2010. I didn't have to shoot a new bow this year. And everybody's like, what do you mean you didn't have to shoot a new bow? So we've always, we were bare for a long time. And, you know, we had to shoot the latest and greatest bow, but expedition this year was like if you like your ms16 that's still one of our flagship bows you can shoot it uh i believe it's a six and a half race height bow which is kind of a mid-range and uh shoots really fast i sh- i'm shooting a um i would say on the lighter side i was shooting shooting carbon expect express maximum reds for a long time and i went with i think it's called a etz or ltz it's their little bit of speed version before that um, I just, uh, you know, I'm not a speed junkie, but I, I, I do a lot of practice in long distances. And I said, you know what, I just want to play with this. I'm shooting plenty of kinetic energy. That same setup last season, I shot an elk at 67 and, uh, and uh, got through his shoulder and killed him. So I know I'm shooting, uh, you know, shooting plenty of kinetic energy, but we're shooting uh, a B3 expandable. B3 is a newer company, actually. A friend of mine is one of the owners. And um, they shoot. I shoot a little bit expandable. They've got a great uh, fixed blade too, which I like. If I have time to tune them and everything, I like them. Uh, one problem I'm having with my current setup, I'm having a hard time getting everything to tune and getting a fixed blade off the shelf far enough to make me feel comfortable. So I've been shooting the expandables uh, thus far, and uh, and shooting shooting a B3 sight. Um, I've been dealing with target panic, which I know if, if y'all are both big bow hunters, you probably had some type of form of this. And it, it's really eaten me up the last couple of years. And I'm shooting a four-pin sight right now, but I'm going to go back to a single pin next year. Yeah. yeah. Or later this season, we, actually. We we did a whole – so I struggled with target panic really bad two seasons ago. Um, like bad enough to where like I was like I didn't want to finish the season because I was just wounding deer. We did a podcast on it, 
with a guy out of New Orleans named Scott Pochet. Um, and he talked a lot, he talked about a lot of drills and stuff for overcoming it. And, um, uh, it really helped me out a lot. Like I, I haven't had it. I didn't have any problems last year. I haven't had any problems since. Um, but it seems to be, it's, it's, it's like contagious almost like you get it. And then it's just this mental thing. And if you learn how to get past it, it's not a problem um, anymore. But what, so do you, have you done any, have you done any major thinking on what is actually causing it? Are you like, are you like getting a pin on the deer and trying to hit it fast? Are you having trouble raising up from under the deer and getting high enough? Like what's, what's your um, specific issue that you're struggling with on it? Well, well, I actually listened to a couple of podcasts and watched a lot of YouTube stuff trying to figure out how to fix this thing. Uh, first of mm-hmm. all, you know, they say that I think it's four or five different types of target panic. Eli Morgan talks about, and I believe I'm more, excuse me. And um, he, uh, the way mine got started is I, I was shooting, I just, only time I ever practiced, I practiced at 80 and 100 yards, you know, during the summer, I, I was shooting and just, seven pin sight shooting a long ways you know and, and what happens is when you're floating and you're shooting that far naturally you have to punch it to time it right which is not the yeah. way to do it but it, it, it that that's what cost okay so what started happening is i would pull the trigger and with a traditional caliber release and i would jerk the bow high right looking where i hit it was all mental and it was really, really, and especially when I got tired, you know, shooting a little bit or there was a panicky situation, like a lot of clothes on or, of course, a big buck coming in, anything that was panic. One of my first fixes, I went with a thumb, uh, T-handle style, not a back tension, but a T-handle style with a thumb trigger release. Um, I'm shooting. That's what I'm still shooting. Um, that, that, okay, let me tell you what that fixes. I don't make it go off. You know, the, the, the bow doesn't go off when I don't mean it to. So that's that's a huge thing. Of course, it's kind of funny, but it's the truth. The sec- Secondly is um, I can you know, maybe treat it a little more like a back tension, pull it with my opposite shoulder back like you're supposed to. But uh, mm-hmm. one thing that, that really, really helps me is if I will blind shoot, literally just, just two yards, forget where you're aiming, put it on there, and, and then go through my shot process in my ear, between the ears. Because it, it's the weirdest thing. It, it's one of the only things in life that it's like, why can't I fix this? Like, my, I'm telling my brain to make this go off and nothing's <clears throat> happened. Like, it's the, and, and if, nobody, if nobody's ever had it, it's even hard to explain. What do you mean you got target panic? But, uh, uh, and so right now, my, uh, what, what, what the problem is on deer is, I, I'm in a panic to it's it, it, what they say. It's like jumping off a cliff. It's not like you're easing off the cliff. It's just all or none. So my process right now, I do not put my thumb on the trigger. I draw back in my brain. I actually say we're just aiming. All right. Mm, my yeah. pen, which I'm, which pick my pen, which I'm, I'm eliminating the pen situation. Cause I won't go back to a single pen. I thought I was over it enough to do it, but I'm not go back to a single pen. All right. Uh, we're just aiming. Okay, okay. I can hold this little green pin on the 
pretend pink dot behind that deer's shoulder. I can do that. All right, now it's time to put my thumb on it. Of course, it all goes a lot faster than that, but that's my mental process now. I didn't say this earlier on my season, but I had a mental a mental jump off the cliff. I was at my place in Missouri that we bought, which is um which is a whole nother podcast is the place up there. But anyway, I right over actually barely clipped the deer we call the framey uh the framey eight. He's a hundred and forty inch eight point, probably five, six year old deer. And literally three minutes before y'all call me, uh Ryan Waska, my partner in the uh farm up there, texted me a picture of him in daylight this afternoon from the cell camera. And uh, he was rutted down, looked like he was out there with a doe, but he is alive and well and uh, still haunting my dreams. <laughs> hmm. So, so yours, yours was more, um, yours kind of developed just out of, out of haste almost. Like mine, mine started from rushing the shot. Um, and then, and then I also caught, caught my, caught myself shooting um pumpkin on the post style versus putting the pen where i wanted the arrow to hit i still don't know where i developed that bullshit from because that came out of nowhere but pumpkin like i'm talking like i would have trouble getting like i would come up from under the deer and try and raise into the kill zone and it was like my arm was made out of concrete and i couldn't lift it any higher and i would get probably into the brisket and i would release just like trying to just get it off as if like it was like a burden on me mm-hmm. to make that shot, um, and then when you're saying uh, pumpkin the, on the post, where you, are you are you saying pumpkin I'm talking, on the post like like a rifle. anywhere I'm you talking, can get it get it close to it? Yeah, I'm talking when I'm second. So when I say pumpkin on the post, I'm ta- I know that I mean obviously a, a single pin doesn't have you know three dots like like line in the front and the back rifle side up, but um, I'm talking. I was. I was shooting, I was aiming above my pen mentally and I was un, unintentionally shooting low. Like I wasn't aiming with where my pen was. I wasn't covering up the spot that I wanted to hit the deer at with my pen. I was thinking that I was going to shoot above it. It's kind of like you said, it sounds silly. It, it feels silly to even admit it almost um, that you have this mental block or problem or whatever. But um, the reality is, is these situations with deer or hogs or whatever we're shooting, they're, they're high pressure. And, um, if you don't have your mental game down also, um, you can do 99% of the whole thing, right. And that last 1% of hitting that release, if, if that's wrong, you don't kill a deer. Um, and that so is what, you, you said a mouthful right there. Because yeah. you can, you can. I mean, this year, this all went through my head after my incident, and, and not that I hadn't missed other deer, but this one just felt different. Uh, I buy the farm in the Midwest. I take the time away from family and business to go up there. I got a rookie cameraman that everything is right. He comes in in daylight. The blinds in the right spot. The corn is mowed right. The food plot was put in right. Slade, all you got to do is make a 34-yard shot on a 260-pound deer. It's not that hard. But then again, apparently it was. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. But, well, um, I like I like what you said about I'm, I'm just aiming. Or did you say we're just aiming or I'm just aiming? Which one no, did you say? I'm just, I, I'm, I'm just aiming. Because what, that's, what I did, what I'm doing is 
uh, when I'm practicing, sometimes I will draw back and aim and let down because I'm just aiming. So I'm, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. I don't know, mind trick into that. I'm just aiming. I'm not, all I have to do is put the dot on there. I'm not trying to make the trigger go off. And, and you know, just going through those mental mental checks. But I think something that has gotten me more than anything. I have shot less and hunted less this year than I have in a lot of years, just busy with work, and, which is a blessing in itself, just busy uh, busy with work. But, you know, back when I was single and I was in my 20s and, and I was shooting, you know, we were doing a lot of doe management and stuff on a lot of places, and literally I shot 23 deer one year with my bow. I mean, you become a pretty proficient killer when you're doing stuff like that. Sure. Uh, and, you know, consist, consistently shooting 10 and 15 a year and, and you know it isn't no different than taking ground balls in the infield when you do it a lot more you're a lot better at it yeah it's not like riding a bike though i always thought it no. was i always thought it was like all right i'm good at this I, i'm good like I, you know i don't need to shoot anymore or whatever but it it is not like riding a bike you don't retain it like you would logically think that you would um i also uh i i, I try and aim on every deer that comes by um sometimes i'll aim at a raccoon sometimes i'll aim at a, a rabbit i just a side note i've seen a bunch of rabbits this year that's kind of new for me but um anyway um and, and sometimes i don't even draw back i'll just pick my bow up hold it out and put that pin on it without being a full draw and i'm just trying to get my mind comfortable with that pin being in the right spot that visual you know that 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 picture mm-hmm. to where I'm not freaking that that's not this hyper escalation moment mentally. It's something that I've seen over and over and over again. And, and it's, it's not a big deal. Um, but um, for me, counting to three was my, was like my number one fixer because my problem, like I said, was rushing the shot and counting the three Counting two, three, being on target before I release helped me break through that big time. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's wild, man. I, I'm, I hate that you're going through it, but at the same time, I'm glad that we can get through it and help other people out with it because, like, I really struggled with it big, big time. I was really upset uh, a couple of years ago. It, it, so. it really is. It, it'll, it'll make you. I was like, okay, I'm going, but I'm going to start shooting with just my recurve. So I don't, I, maybe I don't have this problem. But I'll tell you something that I used to do that is um, in, in the Midwest. You know, when we were when we were filming training asses, we did a lot of we changed our hunting style up a little bit. Did a lot of all day sits in the Midwest before we knew what we knew now. We hunt smarter, not harder. It seems like, uh, but you know, we did a lot of all day sits. I would always buy small game tags and. Uh, I can't tell you how many coons and squirrels I killed. In fact, the other people may say, I can't believe you did that, Slade. One day I had to get down mid pee in my mock scrape and gather up my arrows because I had uh, shot plenty of squirrels and, and coons that morning. But uh, I actually <laughs> killed, a, uh, squ- I killed a squirrel, a coon, and an eight-point all in one morning in Illinois one time. <laughs> That's funny. That's I can really say I'm 40 now, and I've been bow hunting, I'd guess, about 30 years since I, you know, started shooting a bow and probably hunting, started really hunting when I was maybe 13 or 14. And I've 
yet to shoot a squirrel. I I saw a lot of people do it, and I know it's got to be good practice, but I just I've just never done it. It's it, it so well, look, my my record is sixty two yards because he kept ducking me closer. <laughs> That's my record. I have to. So I got maybe it's a stupid question, but I feel like. I haven't had a lot to add to this conversation because, fortunately for me, I haven't had to deal with target panic the way y'all are talking about it. It Knock hasn't been an issue. Yeah, it's coming. Yeah. It's coming, but it, it hasn't yet. But I've always thought about shooting a squirrel, and I've thought to myself, once I got past the, the idea that I might be about to explode an expensive arrow, it's it, it's got to be kind of a sense of accomplishment to hit a squirrel with a bow and arrow, right? Especially out of a tree stand. Oh, yeah. And, and the way they're 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 very smart. They, they jump the arrow, you know. They uh, and and don't shoot them above you out of trees because the arrow just zips right through them and you never find it. Word to the wise. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, you want to shoot them on the ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so obviously, in your line of work, um, you know, we're we're talking about hunting property, and you mentioned exactly you know that you're you're big into deer management and uh, and all that kind of thing so i know that probably most people that pay attention know the real estate market's been really good what 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 have you been seeing what's it what's it looking like out there and let's start talking about that a little bit so you know i i have and anybody who doesn't listen i've got a podcast a landman podcast and we go this stuff stuff about twice a month man the market is crazy so the people listening that are paying attention to the residential market, the land market is just as bad, if not worse. Um, uh, what's happened? Okay, so we're, we're in 2021 now. During COVID, you had a lot of things happen. Uh, first of all, you couldn't play ball, baseball, or football, or all this kind of stuff, or wrestle. Like wrestles. Uh, you couldn't wrestle. And so mamas and daddies, were taking and doing other things in the outdoors. Hunting license sales were up, fishing license sales were up, talking to anybody with that outdoor store, and they'll take, you know, how good it's been. Um, the same thing for my business. It's been really good. Uh, at the same time, we had low interest rates. Uh, so you can borrow money, you know, 4% or less on a, uh, on a track of land right now, and, you know, some with some of the land banks, you can actually get uh, a 1% back. So you're borrowing money at 3%. And, you know, your timber is growing at 5 to 10%. So your timber's outgrowing your interest. Great time to invest. Um, what that's done is made a low, uh, low inventory. So high demand, low inventory prices has gone up. And they don't seem to be slowing down. Uh, I've been saying, been saying it, if you see something you like, Speak up, like like hurry up, like the, and that's not a sales pitch. It's it, it's reality. Like you know, usually if you it, usually we've got time to negotiate. We're going to negotiate hard. We're going to search. Man, right now, if you see something you like, you better speak up because I'm not and I'm not talking about hundred thousand dollar properties. I'm talking about hundred thousand dollar properties to ten million dollar properties. They are flying off the shelf right now, which is good in my business, but uh. You know, I feel bad for people. You know, I've got people with multi-million dollars in their pocket, and it's like every time they look at something, it gets bought before they can do something. That sounds crazy, but it really is. It, it, it is a crazy time, but it's been really fun. Um, coolest part of my job is I get to make some of my dreams come true every day in the sense of 
you know, accomplishing the goal of selling the property or for buyers, of course, you know, people with my reputation have gone and they say, I'll tell them, okay, here's this track of land. If you don't do these things, this is what you'll get on camera. Now, listen, I said what you'll get on camera, not what you'll kill. If you can kill them, that's your business. That's what you get on camera. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been really cool because I get to take such a huge sample size of what's going on in the Felicianas and Southwest Mississippi about deer movement, uh, deer management, uh, you know, you know, just, just so many cool things that I get to take such a huge sample size and, and, you know, I get to see what works. So like if you own a hundred acres and you say, you know, over the 20 years, you're figuring out what works. I get to do that on 15 different tracks of land, you know, every season that are new people going and let's try this, let's try this. Hey, Slate, I'm doing this and it's working. And that's from hog trapping to feeders to food plots, timber management, deer management, stand placement. I mean, it's the coolest thing because I get those. I get to take all these things and learn from it. And and alluding back to what I said, hunting smart, not hard. We're all busy. Look, I love hunting hard, and the only time I get to do that is when I go out of town. But I've been spoiled lately to these, you know, cell cameras. I sit there and watch them and ever when the, like, I know right now that the weather Monday, we're recording this on the 16th on Monday and Tuesday, the weather is going to be right. Mm -hmm. I've already moved my cameras around. I know where the wind's going to be. I'm going to be sitting at one of those spots because I'm watching the wind. I'm the same thing y'all are doing. I'm watching the wind and watching the weather. And now I'm, you know, watching these cell cameras and, you know, maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't, but I'm going to hunt when my, when my percentage of the highs, which is going to be Monday and Tuesday. Now this afternoon I went, I was just trying to shoot a doe or a hog. I got blowed at twice and the wind was swirling, but really I just, this afternoon, I said, God, I just, I just need to go get in the woods and, and, and listen to a doe blow, I guess. <laughs> so how, how different. Well, first of all, let me ask simply, first of all, how long have you been doing this, uh, the, the real estate? I've uh, been doing it 15 years, um, and I'm not old, but I have been. I've been doing it 15 years. I so started at Mossy Oak Properties and then came over to the United Country, and myself and Craig Fix actually started the Realtree United Country uh, division of United Country. Kind of, that was a cool story. It was seven months of non-disclosure meetings and really the biggest thing that's ever happened to the real estate and outdoor world is combining those two companies kind of number one in the uh in the camouflage department and number one in the department combining forces so that's been a really really cool thing i'm curious like with with that amount of uh, exposure and experience in, in the field how much has the the let's call it the trail cam revolution everybody you know now we're well, now we're evolving from just stri- uh, uh, trail cams to cellular trail cams, which is a whole other thing. But how much has that changed your marketing abilities and, and stuff like that on recreational land? I would assume that that just makes another tool in your belt makes your job a little easier. Yeah, so the difference is, you know, the whole, I'm the only one talking about what I'm about to say. You give me, you give me 80 acres that like any of us three would own and you've got five years of trail camera pictures and these deer made it from last year and these are turkeys only if you hunt this one on this wind you give me all that information i can put it on my social media and all, all on my websites and stuff it will fly off the shelf 
you could take the exact same 80 acres and not give me any deer pictures, not give me any history or kill pictures or nothing like that, and it does not get the traffic. And it's really the only difference is it's the way things are marketed. I can take right now, and I can go on my social media and my website, and I can show a piece of property to more people in, say, 48 hours than than you used to could in six months not started. Just, I mean, for instance, if, I know both of y'all follow me on different social media channels. My Instagram story every morning, it goes to Facebook, of course, too. I say what I'm doing and where I'm going to a piece of property. By the end of the day, somebody will text me about something I talk about or, or call me about something I talk about on my Instagram story. And I'm not talking about I'm talking about multi-million. I saw almost a $6 million track this year, and the first conversation came from my Instagram story. So it's not just it's not just we're talking about kids and teenagers laying on their phones. I mean, this is this is real life. And, and, and the residential world gets it a little more, but the outdoor, the outdoor recreational land market, they don't get it yet. And, and good for me, because the only reason I know about it is because I had to learn from the train assassin TV days and having to learn about social media marketing and things like that. That's the only reason I know what I know now. Yeah. yeah. And, and go ahead, Mark. No, you go ahead. Well, what I was going to say, obviously I'm in a totally different business than you Slade, but I have to credit about 50 to 60% of my revenue every year comes from Instagram specifically. Um, not necessarily Facebook as much, but, I'm mainly working with businesses outdoor and businesses and outdoor brands and the majority of attention that we get. And a lot of the customer outreach comes through DMs and then we funnel them into email where we can keep up with their conversation and their notes and their logos and stuff. But it's, it's insane. It, the, the amount of reach now is, is really wild. Global world. Well, I think yeah. what, I mean, you hear it, you hear it on the ad spot that we run. Uh, for you on this podcast and we kind of talk about the dynamic that you have and you with with the way you approach your business and and you uh you kind of alluded to the hectic nature of it right now with things kind of flying off the shelf but one of the things that i was interested to hear you talk a little bit about is um and you've alluded to it in a couple of different ways so far but you know this idea that you get to go and pair up seller and buyer on like you put it uh, a dream come, come true kind of thing, you know, what kind of things are you, are you getting from these people? Like, I'm assuming it's, it's an individual approach, but, uh, you know, guys that are looking for, um, different style of hunting property, different things, they all got different goals and ambitions that what part of you know, how does that work in your job and, and what do you get out of that? So the first thing, if you call me more and say, slave, I've got, Let's say three hundred thousand dollars is spent. I, okay, I say, well, let's talk about where you want to be. You know, if that uh, at three hundred thousand dollars in West Feliciana, we ain't getting you much. You know, uh, the farther basically the way the world works in in my world is the farther you want, the farther you drive from Baton Rouge and New Orleans, the cheaper the land gets. So, um, you know, you drive to St. Francisville, it's one price. You drive to Woodville, it's a little cheaper. You drive to Adams County, about the same as Woodville, but as you go north it kind of gets it, it kind of gets uh cheaper now I, as you just heard i re, i mentioned river counties and parishes where we all want to be from a hunting standpoint as you go east sometimes it gets cheaper too 
So uh, Avent County is a little cheaper than Wilkeston. Uh, East Feliciana is a little cheaper than and West Feliciana. So, okay, you asked me, you said, Slate, I got $300,000 to spend. Okay, my next question, okay, what's your goals? Tell me, tell me what your goals for your piece of property. And what we do, and everybody is guilty of this, is we look through everything on our lens. When I first got in this business, I said, oh, well, everybody wants to grow big bucks, and they want to shoot only four-year-olds, and they only want to bow hunt. And that couldn't be any farther from the truth. Some Now, I would say more, more often than not, most people who are buying these big, expensive products sell are into deer management. It's not the, oh, y'all going to get somebody from South Louisiana in here and they're going to shoot everything. That's not the case. I mean, that's maybe 1% or less. It, the people that are spending this type of money are either tired of the hunting club atmosphere and want something quality, they want to check their investment, you know, shoot the right things. Or, uh, you know, but but also on, on the other hand, you've got some people that are buying land, like, hey, I buy this for my grandkids, I want them to grow up in the outdoors, and their goal may be to shoot a six-point. Their goal may be to shoot a doe or, or a deer, a legal deer. And, 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 you know, the deer manager in me beats on my head and says, no, no, we got to shoot big bucks. But then, uh, as the older I get, I get it more and more. It's like, you know what? Whenever we were all little and we killed our first deer, our goal wasn't to let's all go shoot giant deer one day. We just liked deer hunting because it made us happy and it's exciting. And if the guy legally wants to buy a place and only shoot legal deer, guess what? Amen to that, brother, the American dream. Now, if I'm his neighbor, I want him to shoot the right things and we're going to have that conversation. But it's nothing wrong with that. And as hunters, definitely on this social media world, guess what? If a guy wants to shoot every two-year-old 820Cs, that's his business. You need to respect that. Yeah. Well, that that, that can be said about uh, <laughs> a whole lot of conversations that happen in the outdoor <laughs> industry. You, you know, um, respecting one another and, and, and finding a way to get along and having your opinion and being able to share your opinion without – uh, being combative is that the is that the best way to put mm-hmm. it? Being combative. That's, that's so, a big word. Well, but it's 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 an issue. We talk, <laughs> let's not get off into that. <laughs> but, but, yeah, uh, I've got a, I've got a question for yeah. you. Um, this is uh more specifically towards purchasing property. Uh, this is kind of something that I'm running into. It's not for hunting land, but for commercial. But I just want to wanted to run this by you, um, hear your opinion on it. Um, when you see a piece of property that isn't listed for sale and you want to want to approach the owner, first of all, have you done that? Have you essentially tried to buy land that isn't listed? And do you have any advice on how to navigate that conversation with somebody? Yeah, uh, we do that all the time approach daily you know tracks of land that aren't for sale you know trying to either get them for sale or buy them for a, a, a client or whatever um you know people are uh people are people and what i mean by that is people i mean i've had conversations i talk to people about their track of land or, or their house that they want to sell or whatever and they get a business ah my grandpa gave me that piece of land i'll never how dare you ask and i mean you know whatever you just let that roll off your shoulder but, uh, yeah. you know, what it, really, what it really means as a seller, you should say, man, that's awesome. I have a nice asset 
that somebody would want to purchase. No, I don't want to sell these this time, but I appreciate that. That's how you should treat it. Uh, but anything, you know, if you go, somebody, you know, you got to realize this. Okay, if you go to somebody and their land or house or a commercial building, and they don't have it for sale. Okay, your objective, if you're trying to buy it, is to get it for as cheap as you can. You don't know if their objective is okay. You know, if they say, uh, all right, if it's only worth fifty thousand, they say, look, if you want it, I'll give it to you for a hundred thousand. Guess what? They weren't trying to sell it. That's their prerogative. So you gotta, you know, you gotta. You got to navigate human behavior there a lot. You got to mm-hmm. uh, figure out, hey, and then and then let me. The difference between a good real estate agent and a great real estate agent, and this could also be a good buyer and a bad buyer in your situation, is if he says, "Man, you know, I I uh, I, I wouldn't mind selling it, but what I'm going to do with the money? I have to pay with taxes." Then the difference a good seller, I mean, a good agent, bad agent is problem fixer. I'll tell you what do. If I was able to find you something to invest in that that would give you the same rate of return or provide you the same level of comfort or enjoyment or whatever it is, could we maybe talk about it then? So you're fixing this problem and you're getting what you want too. So let's say it was commercial building. This, let's say this guy's making 6% of his money. I'm just throwing numbers out there. 6% of his money. He said, I, I wouldn't mind selling it to you, but man, I, 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 you know, I've got to pay a lot of tax if I sell it. And I like the 6% income. He said, well, if I was able to find you another property with a 6% income relative to the same money, would you be interested in trading in that property? Yeah, that sounds good. Then you fix this problem, you slide in there and you get your piece of property and everybody wins. What's, so th- there's, I know there's like a, a three number uh, code for that where you trans, you're transferring value from one to the other. As long as you invest in it under 90 or 120 days, you don't get taxed on it. Well, What's it called? It's called a, it's called a, it's called a 1031 tax-free exchange. So yeah, you get to, uh, so, so if you buy property a for a hundred thousand dollars, I mean, you, you sell property a for a hundred thousand dollars. You don't get to take that money. That pop, that money goes, what's called a QI a qualified intermediary. He goes and, uh, he, he holds the money and you have 45 days to identify up to three properties that you're going to, uh, transfer into. From your date of your original closing, you have 180 days to close on one of those three properties uh, in order to be 100% tax-free. Hmm. Never heard of that. Do you know that? Do you know that, Locke? Yeah. No. yeah. I mean, so, yes, sir, I knew there was a way. I knew there was a way to transfer, but uh, I, I have not. I have no experience in the real estate world. So, so whenever, whenever anybody hears that in the news, they're talking about doing away with 1031 tax-free exchange and that sort of thing. It would kill the real estate industry. For instance, what I'm doing here, uh, how I bought the place I'm sitting on right now when I was fresh out of college. And this is for young people out there listening. Hey, Slade, I'd like, you know, I've got 130 acres I live on with my nice house and a couple food plots and stuff like that. And I absolutely love it. It's a dream come true. It didn't start the day I wanted the dream. I had this dream in college. In 07, I bought 12 acres in a house trailer. I 1031 tax-free exchange when I sold it. I bought 110 acres in Wilkeson County and so on and so forth, about 10 flips in order to be able to afford what I have now. So if you hear what I'm saying, I did it with other people's money. I was smart when I bought and I started small. You know, I started with a $48,000 property and ended up with a a whole, whole, whole lot more expensive property than that. So, you know, that's how you start. That's a good conversation for the people out there listening. You know, you, you start small and you make your money on the buy. 
you buy it right because it's only going to sell what the market will allow. You got to buy less or either figure out a way to provide value. You put in food plots, uh, you know, fix it up, clean it up, clean a title issue up, things like that. Well, yeah. That that brings up an, an interesting point that I wanted to, to get into with you. You know, as it pertains to a, a lot of what is likely our, our primary listening audience here, you know, with your exposure to property management, land management, and all these different properties that you get to see, and I'm assuming that inevitably you end up with with friendly relationships with a lot of these people that you that you, in, you do business with and follow-ups and all that kind of thing. What are some of the things that you've experienced that you've seen that differentiate guys who are investing and having a lot of success in the way that they're managing and setting up their property? And I'm speaking mostly for hunting and recreational use. What are some of the do's and don'ts? What are some of the things that are working for people that, that you see that, that people are doing that, that somebody should consider if they are looking to get into investment property? Uh, investment, uh, well. Well, I, when I say that, to... I just mean investing in purchasing property. Okay, so let's say they're they're, they're buying property. Okay, do, if we're talking from a hunting standpoint, uh, if I'm, I'm reading you right, the do's and don'ts, what pe- yeah. people are buying and, and what they could be doing better on. So I get all the time, I tell clients, okay, if you buy this track of land, I always tell them, okay, this is the black eye. This is what I don't like. This is what I would do to improve it. I mean, there's no property that, including my own, there's not things I would do to improve. You know, and you can do anything with money and time. But, uh, you know, one of the first things that usually need to be fixed on a property, see, in the Felicianas and in Southwest Mississippi where I work, most of these properties at one time or another were either timberland company property or somebody that grew timber on them. You know, there's there's not a lot of that, you know, old dairy farm or cropland. There's not a lot of that up there. It's some. But it's not. So we're usually dealing with an old piece of warehouse or a plum creek that it was hunting club or something like that. So most of your food plot are what? A shooting lane or a logging ramp. You know, best, best case scenario, half an acre, one acre at most. Okay, I, um, I'm i a big proponent of big food plots. Now, now I'm looking for Slade's lens here, but I like to bow hunt big white tailed deer. Now, the big food plots work for for uh, for bow and gun hunting, uh, bow and gun hunting. Um, so the first thing I said, hey, if you want to make this place better, the clients that are doing a the clients that are getting the most success out of their places, we have to create things that the neighbor doesn't have. Okay, so let's say my average my average place I sell is about 250 acres. So let's use that as an example. On this 250 acres. All right, right now there's 11 food plots and none of them is bigger than a half acre. That's a problem. We got too many pieces on the chessboard. Let's put five food plots in there. Let's make them all two to five acres, depending on your goals and exact situation. And of course, in the hills of West Louisiana, Wilkeson County, where I deal with a lot, you know, we have topography issues, so we have to do what we can to make big food plots. Let's figure out when we design them from day one, let's think about access and winds, how we're going to get in and out of these places and design these food plots, because that's great if you can get them in the food box, but how are we going to kill them, especially get them within 40 yards of boats? So we think about all these things, like even to the fact of, okay, you see that big red oak right there, and it's got that, uh, it's got that magnolia tree beside it. That's where we're going to build this food plot so we can 
have a north wind and you can hunt in that red oak with that uh, with that magnolia keeping you for cover year round and and taking and taking a place and designing how you want and there's nothing more rewarding than two years in when you got the food plot light and the, and the limes right and you were seeing two or three deer in these food plots or five deer and all of a sudden slade they call me in december when it's actually cold and say slade i saw 25 deer in my food plot this afternoon that big five-year-old we're talking about he actually scared the edge of the food plot going back in there tomorrow to kill him that's super rewarding from my end when somebody does what i recommend and then it works i treat food plots like this if us three are 19 years old and we're in baton rouge we're going to the bar with 100 girls not the bar with 10 girls bucks in the food plot are exactly the same you got to put a lot of girls in there and the bucks are coming i don't you know if, if you put 10 adult does in a big food plot in Southwest Mississippi, some, from December 15th to January 15th, there's going to be a good buck daylight in there. They cannot help it if the does are in there during daylight. Not only that, you can actually put groceries in there, so we can create, you know, increase the carrying capacity. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to really feed a lot of deer on a half acre food plot, but we got a two five acre food plot, and we're putting the groceries out there. We're holding our deer healthier. They're growing bigger racks, and we're and and you know we're able to. Get these deer in here, we can get them killed. So, and as my as yeah. my little three year old says, eat all their meat. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm listening I'm listening to you, Slade, and 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 you know you're talking about food food plots and you got analogies and honestly, man, all I can think about is bogeys, Freds, and mind erasers and and sorority girls. Well, <laughs> after you said that analogy, that's the only thing running through my mind was like bogey. I was like, which bar in Tigerland would have ten girls, and which one would have hundred girls? And like Freds would have hundred girls. <laughs> so I just well, my, back, uh, my mind went to Tigerland also. Yeah, I, I went I'm, back to back about eighteen years in my mind. <laughs> trying to keep my mind off of Tigerland. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, what, so whenever whenever you develop your next food plot, you we need to call one Fred's, one Bogies, one the Texas Club. You know that's where a lot of girls come, but you know they're a little little whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's where that's where the non typical bucks show up, right? That's right. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of fighting. <laughs> so. I got another question. You talking about groceries? What in your experience? What's your strategy on on supplemental feeding? How did it? How do you do it? Is there is there a way you can overdo it? You know, what are your thoughts about that? You know, there's 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 a there's a big school of thought. Look, my preferred way to shoot a deer is eating corn. Like it, love it, hate it. I don't care. That's what I like to do. I'm a grown man. It's legal, and that's what I like to do. Now. Would it be more rewarding if I was in the in the city and got in there and got Not reality. I live. Um, I am a uh, you know it's so it's getting hard to afford you know to feed deer year round. I mean with protein at five hundred dollars a ton, it's getting hard to do. Um, you know something a big part of my conversation with clients is that what type of feeder feeders do you like? Every place is different. Deer can be trained to do almost anything. Um, you know, I remember the first time I went to Texas and watched him come out behind a spin feeder behind a truck. I said, Mississippi deer will never do that. You can do it fair chase, in a high fence, out of high fence. Within about two years, you, you, can, you can train them to do whatever you want. Um, and so I like, if possible, uh, of course, I like coming to a spin feeder. You can regulate how much they come and when they come. Uh, but I'm a, I use boss bucks a lot. Uh, they're easy to buy. They're right down the road. 
a lot in my 20,000 acres around my house where I have three different places to hunt pretty much every deer will go to one because somebody on the neighborhood is feeding out of a boss buck so there's no uh there's no learning curve there's no two-year learning curve you know you stick out a boss buck two nights later you got a mature buck eating out of it because they're just used to it but every area is different every place is different you know um my my deer in my front yard took two years to go to Peter. Check my camera right now. There's probably some standing up there right now. I'll give y'all up to date. What's up there? It is a hmm, big shooter six point. He is a four year old. I, if he started daylight and I kill him, he's about 18 inches wide. He's standing 300 yards from me right now. Technology. <laughs> it's crazy. Isn't it? <laughs> it is. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So, um, what what cameras are you running, Slade? Uh, I am, you know, I've been sponsored by a lot of different ones over the years. My favorites are the coverts, but I've got some spy points and I've got uh, some stealth cams. Look, they all work if you treat them right. And look, I know a lot of people talk terrible about the spy points. I got four of them, and I've and I've updated them and done the right things, and I've got four of them, and I've been using them for three seasons, and they send pictures to me every day. The battery life sucks. <laughs> but they, they're cheap and they work. But the coverts, they spend a little more money on them. But, like, I've got two coverts right now sitting in Missouri, and they send me pictures every day, and I've changed the batteries on them once this season. Mm. Nice. There well, you go. So another question that we get all the time that has to do with land <laughs> is uh, how do you hunt pine thickets? Ooh, put a big piece of white in the middle of them. <laughs> yeah. Corn. Corn. What? Yeah, corn. Just corn? more corn. More corn. More corn. Yeah. Well, Thank I know, you, yeah. you know, I, I'm in the same basic community area as you are. And, there, you know, a lot of guys, you know, a lot of people that don't have uh, family property or, or act, there, there's just a lot of pine. There's a lot of pine thicket hunting in our neck of the woods. You know, and uh, you know, we were talking to Mr. Dave Moreland, and that you know, it, it's a simple thing that we say is like you know, food plots and corn. Yeah, but you know, the one thing that we that we do know is there's not a lot to eat in there. And if he's four or five years old and he's healthy, he's eating somewhere, right? Well, let me let me let me let me back that up. Okay, so I get this all the time. This okay, so let's pretend you own the track and you actually have some control. Okay. So, and when we say pine thicket, you know, it's a loaded word, you know, if it's six year old pine trees, yeah, that's a pine thicket. You know, uh, three year old pine, you know, three year old pine plantation, there couldn't be more food anywhere else in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's, it, it is a smorgasbord of every type of food uh, deer likes in Southwest Mississippi. Now we go through, we go through a period when they start, you know, they're getting thinner and thinner and thinner and, and, and uh, shoot, the trees are getting thicker. And when you get where, you know, you can see 40 yards down through a young pine plantation, that's a deer desert. Yes. Okay. When they get 12 to 14 years old or 15 and you thin them the first time that sunlight hits the ground, boom. You know, we've got, you know, we've, we've got great deer food. Actually, good timber management and deer management in pine trees go hand in hand. Every one of us are guilty because I feel guilty every day. We ride in and we see 
a hundred acre oak bottom that you can see 200 yards through. And the first thing goes through our mind is, oh my gosh, this is big buck country. This is something I use for my clients to dummy it down for dumb people like me. Deer don't live in pretty. Yeah. Now, you know, they, they'll come feed through that oak bottom, absolutely. But you go through there and you make that 100-acre oak bottom only 10 acres, and you thin that thing real hard and ugly it up real good and briar it up and put some mud holes in it from the skitter rut so trees grow up and get nasty. That's where they live. That's where they feed. You know, we uh, we all glorify the big hardwood bottom, but if 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 it if you know hardwoods are only dropping, you know, whenever uh you know when we're hunting there in the fall, but all the deer's horns are grown when they're growing from you know March to to September, you know, there's nothing for them in that oak bottom. So a place has got to have the diversity. You know, the first thing people say, I want to grow big deer, I need oak trees. I, I actually in our area, I would argue the other way. Uh, you take and you take a place. Let's take a, a let's take a big place, a big sample size. Let's go 500 acre place, and you could have some you know pine plantations, some oak bottoms that uh, you know SMZs, streamside management zones that all the timber companies leave. And we can go. So we got different age pine timber. So this age pine timber is getting to be a deer, deer desert. Okay, we're gonna thin it, it. All of a sudden, it becomes good habitat. This one over here, it's getting mature. Okay, we're going to clear cut it. All new habitat. So we're always changing the habitat. Also with fire. So we're burning this one. We're not burning this one. We're thinning this. We're always changing our habitat. If we got that 500 acres and it's all mature hardwoods, we can thin and clear cut. We can thin maybe twice in our lifetime with hardwoods, and we can clear cut only once. So you can't change that habitat. You're kind of stuck with what you got a little more. And, I, and I'm speaking for Southwest Mississippi. When you cross the river over to Concordia Parish and Chansaw, it's it's a little different over there with the with the ag fields and the WRP and things like that. But in the pine timber country, as we're talking about, you treat a big place pine plantation with a bunch of different ages and do the timber management and the burning and things right. I can grow you big deer on it every year. But we're all thinking from a hunting club standpoint of all. Eight-year-old pine trees, absolutely, it's hard to kill and grow deer in that. Yeah, I, I think the, this conversation really kind of veers away from the spirit of, 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 of our overall conversation with you because I think the problem that most people have when, when you get in these conversations, they don't have the control over the property to do these things that you're talking about. And um, mm-hmm. But it's good to know because if you are, if you are somebody, I, I would – I'm not a real estate guy, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture to guess that you can more affordably purchase 300 acres of plantation pine than you can 300 acres of big hardwoods, right? Correct. And, and it's, uh, big hardwoods are almost, you know, our area is so, so hard, so hard to yeah. find. You know, it's it's different when you get up towards Natchez. Speaking of, uh, did I see your truck parked on Rodney Road last year on a, on a hunting camp down there one day? Probably because I'm from there and I got property all around there. Well, I thought I saw it. It's right by a piece of South Side, the Share Club that I have. And, and oh, every yeah. time I ride by it, I always meant to ask yes. you. I thought I saw your truck parked there one day. Yes, you did. Actually, I saw you down there. You were showing somebody that South Side property, I think. It looked like you had somebody you were mm-hmm. showing. Yeah, I hunt down yeah, I'm there. Actually, I'm actually go, I'm going down there tomorrow. The, uh, the pace right behind that camp. Uh, and then the Frazier, which is on the other mm-hmm. side of the south. I'm going to show both of those tomorrow. 
Yeah, yeah, that's some fine stuff down there. Yeah, I hunt down there on on some of uh, the what do they call it, Cypress Grove? Hunt down there sometimes. Okay, but yeah, that's uh that's a whole nother world when you talk about looking at a at a hardwood bottom that you can picture a big buck walking through. But to your point, all that property around there, the stuff that's not on Bolte that's uh that's been managed and cut, they're holding all the deer. Just to our point, don't y'all lease the piece that goes to the Sonny Martin piece of Southside? Mm-hmm. Don't y'all lease that piece? Yeah. Okay, that's as pretty. Kyle, think about the the prettiest hardwood stand that's never been touched in any of our lifetimes times two. That's it. Mm-hmm. When you go right over to the what they call the uh, the Tedder property, which is right behind that camp, they thinned that hardwood a couple of years ago. That's got all the deer. It does. I mean that that it's it's thick and ugly, but that's got that's got all the deer. But um, I tell you, that's one thing, and it's been a cool thing as a hunter, a bow hunter in general. Is okay. So that world over there, that's the and what we're talking about. We're talking about flood ground in the Mississippi River. Uh, some of the uh, honestly around Bolte, some of the best ground that Mississippi has to offer in certain areas. Mm-hmm. And, and so that that is so much different than the world I grew up in in Avent and Wilkeson County hunting because we have crops, we've got giant landowners and duck hunting property and the Mississippi River flooding. I didn't grow up. I learned all that in my adult life as a real estate agent about the dynamics of that. For instance, um, I didn't know until I got to hunt some of these areas that the bluff of the river and how that bluff is treated by the deer coming back and forth, almost like a Midwest standpoint, they, they move more, they're more nomadic. Uh, what the river does and how, you know, how those deer react to it and, and the good hunters, the old school hunters you can sit and listen to about what those deer are going to do with that water if it's coming up or it's going down at the time of year it comes up. It's just been a really cool blessing to learn about you know, uh, the things the things that that river and that type of land will do versus what we're used to hunting in. It is. Well, I grew up in Natchez, and so I've been hunting that that terrain my whole life in, in some capacity. And, and I tell people, it's it's the closest thing that we have. If you can, if you can hunt that area in January and the river doesn't flood it, it's the closest thing we have to a November rut in the Midwest. The deer just act different. They're a different animal down there than they are mm-hmm. in the hills. And, and you know, growing up in Natchez, I, I hunted plenty on the um, on the other side of sixty one in in the in the terrain that's more like where we live now, and and have done both. But it, it it is it's you know it's if you're smart, and uh, I'm sure both of you would agree on some level. If you're smart, you you kind of listen to a lot of the things uh, that you hear from people that that you're exposed to that you grow up around that have been around a long time and uh i've learned and some of it might be uh just kind of just wives tale type stuff but i found that a lot of these old timers that i grew up hunting with as a kid and a young man that have hunted in that river bottom or the ones that have hunted in the hills and the pines you know some of the stuff they say it's rooted in truth and I, I too have have heard and learned a lot of things about. It's really amazing how those deer live and interact with that river, and how they they know what's coming and they know how to survive it. It's really amazing what the river can do, and yet the deer still survive. They don't just survive it; they thrive. 
and it's uh, there's, yeah there's nothing it, it can hurt them so bad but like we're into the second year of low water in the bottoms and the deer are doing way better than they did you know last year and they and if we get if we continue on with a good dry year this year and only have a small springtime flood next year is going to be better and better i tell people all the time i've hunted around bolty on the track uh about five miles south of where we're talking about uh on the other side of bolty over towards anna's bottom really um and i've never there's a track in there that at the time when i was hunting it you couldn't have gave me it was 220 acres and i sold it i didn't own it but i sold it uh you couldn't have gave me 220 acres in the middle of iowa i would have taken i had 220 acres with four other people hunting and feeding and running cameras on it i had 17 deer in six weeks over four years old two of them which would probably bump over 160 at least three of those were over 150 I killed opening day a big non-typical deer that's on my business card. He's a five-year-old deer. They knew him pretty good. I killed him opening day. And then uh, two weeks later, I killed a 137-inch 10-point that weighed 235 pounds. And if I would have had another week before I sold it, I'd have probably killed, I'd have probably tagged out. I've never seen, and the water was not up. This was uh, October, November. It's, I've never seen anything like it. It's it's crazy, and I guess I've got I've hunted Iowa, I hunt Kansas every year. I got a place in Missouri. I've never seen 220 acres with 17 shooters on camera, and the water was not up at all. It's just something amazing about that river bottom. That that that's kind of an interesting topic too, because I think the moral of the story is um, there's certain air. You know, speaking about Louisiana, being Louisiana bow hunter podcast, you know, there's there's areas of Louisiana that offer the same thing along the river. And if you don't know it, it's time to learn it. <laughs> if you have the ability to, because, uh, what Kyler, you're better at this than I am. What areas, what area numbers are on the river? Um, I know six. I'm, I'm, I know. Well, no. Well, six, yeah, six, six is pretty wide, like east to west. There's some, some of six is on the river. The majority of six is kind of closer to Lafayette, the Chafalot Basin. Um, and then areas uh, one and areas one for sure, and I would have to check two. Um, but I think area yeah, one area, area six go, more, area six goes over both sides of the river, right there. Uh, south yeah, of, uh, Westville. north of Baton Rouge. Yeah, yeah Westville. <clears throat> I think I think area I think area one covers the majority of the northeast part of the state, yeah. um, and that very like rural ag, low bottom, not no major cities eastern northeastern side of the state so okay so the interesting question to ask you um from the 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 real estate standpoint is then how different is your approach with selling that kind of property as opposed to property that that has a totally different um management standpoint when it comes to the timber and all that kind of stuff because obviously in a lot of that you know it's swampy you don't have the same you don't have the same setup there. So what's – I know that property, at least at this day and age, If correct me if I'm wrong, it, it, it's more expensive, right? Well, it depends on the track, okay? So like what we call the Martin, when I, it's 570 acres I'm going to sell. It's all in the river bottom. We're, me and my, uh, me and my uh, assistant, New Ryan, as I call him, we were talking about this topic today. So with the recent history of the river coming up, uh, you know, I guess that would be two and three years ago, 
you know, historic flooding. River properties have not recovered. In order to buy a river property right now, I can't talk you into it. You, you like the guy going to look tomorrow, he understands that they could all go 12 foot underwater. And, and he's okay with that because he knows he gets phenomenal deer hunting and huge duck hunting. The thing about in southwest Mississippi, you can't have ducks and not have flood ground. Doesn't work down here. Now, we can jump on the other side of the river, and I can do that. Uh, I've got that 342 acres right in the middle of Yancey for sale. You know, it, it, it will flood, but it has pumps and things, so it don't have to flood. Uh, but, you know, you, you can't have ducks and not have some type of flood ground. So if a guy Slade, I need you to sell me some property. I want really good deer hunting, but he doesn't know a lot about it, which is actually most people. If I tell him, now, listen, you you know, this property, you late December, January, you you could lose this whole property for a season. Usually they're out. They won't even go look, not even an option, because of the recent river. If we were having the same conversation in 2000, when we had like 10 years of virtually no water during the, the deer season, it's a different conversation, but that's that's not the case right now. So they are hard to sell. One that is most attractive to me, I've got one that I'm working on in Wilson County right now. Hills and bottoms. So you got the deer in the hills and turkeys in the hills, and then you got ducks and deer in the bottoms and possibly turkeys, of course. The tracks that you can catch deer, I mean, kill deer, catch fish, kill turkeys, kill ducks, alligators, fishing, all of the above, that's the coolest ones to me. That's the ones that, uh, that's the ones that make me say, man, if I had the money, I'd buy these. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I can say this unequivocally. I understand the dynamic that, that, that some of your buyers are dealing with where you, you, you tell them that about the river and, and they shut down. I get it. I mean, I can understand that, but if they'd ever experienced it, I have to believe that they would they would have a little bit of a second thought because I can tell you now if I had the money that's and you and I were sitting down talking about it, that's the properties I'd want you to be showing me because there's nothing like it, you know, as far as when it's right, one year of it being right is worth a, is, is worth the risk to me. Um, I, w- I was told, I don't know if you if – you, uh, have ever heard this but to me this is just really interesting as it pertains to land and value and real estate and stuff like that growing up in natchez um i watched uh from my teenage years up into my adult years i, I watched the whole thing flip you know when i was a teenager and and even really before that there was lots of river bottom property that was cheap and nobody cared about it and and the kind of the story was historically when um you know I'm talking post civil war era a lot of the freed slaves and things like that were given this property because they couldn't do anything with it it was flood property it was you know uh the, the, the it was harder to work Grant, granted we have a lot more technology and innovation and ability these days than they did back then but it, that's what they were given and and nobody did anything with it. And now you've watched the hunting culture develop from both deer camp culture to uh, people that are investing in their own private properties and managing property. And, and people are starting to realize that God didn't make better habitat than that. 
and you've watched it turn on its head. It went from property that you couldn't farm, property that you couldn't timber, just swamp flood property to, you know, the sportsman's paradise. And, uh, but you alluded to it a little bit. It's interesting uh, to hear from your perspective a little bit about how maybe some of that is is becoming tilted a little bit because of the river. I mean, I know you've, I'm sure with properties you're, you've, you've dealt with a lot of them. I mean, the river's been really bad. It is. It's, it, it, it's definitely, it, it, it's affected people. And I think if we can have one more year dry, dry water, opinions will go back, go back to normal because it really is. It's a shame that, you know, we had a couple of years and it, and it did hurt the deer and hurt the wildlife. You know, it used to be a lot of turkeys down in there oh, what yeah. we're talking about, but, but it's, it's not now. Um, and, uh, you know, I experienced it growing up more in the, uh, Fort Adams area down towards Lake Mary and stuff. Cause that's, that's where I grew up. And, you know, we, we partied and, and, and went out and bow fished and duck hunted all down at Lake Mary. And you saw that down there, that area, I had not been to Lake Mary in two years, of course, because of high water until this summer. And man, when I went down there, it was like an apocalyptic. I mean, it was like, all these camps, the yards hadn't been cut, and the trees were dead. And now, now that was early in the summer. Of course, it looks a lot better down there now. But it, uh, I just hope we continue to get um, a drier, some drier years, so so we get our bottom land to come back. Yeah, it's it's if you haven't had the chance, even if you have to go explore, you know, public ground in those areas that that offer that, you should you should make some hunts because uh, I know. I've experienced this, and I, and I, there's just something different when you sit in a tree stand for three or four hours in the river bottom. There's always something going on, or it used to be anyway when it was before this time that we're talking about some of the river damage. But it's just it's just a a thriving ecosystem that's hard to explain unless you just sit quietly and and experience it for yourself. And then, like I said, there's it's the closest thing that we have to the Midwest rut. You know when they start rutting down there in January. So it's really cool, and I've I've seen I'm jealous sometimes because I, I I I do follow you on social media, and I see some of these some of these properties that you list down there, and they look a lot like some of the places I've had the pleasure to hunt growing up, and I'm like, man, that's just I could it, uh, uh, if I had the money, that's where I'd be, you know. So just and, from and hunting speaking and speaking of that, you know, I know a lot of people listen to this podcast, public land hunters, and things like that. And they're listening to slaves saying, oh, you're talking about rich people hunting on these big lands. Look, I get up hard and I work every day. And if a guy can afford to buy a piece of hunting property, that, that, that's his business. One cool thing, if you don't know about it, Southside, which we've referenced, and there's several of these up and down the Mississippi River, and they're getting more and more popular, are. So you can take, and for 375000 if you get a camp, maybe 425450 you can be – a member of Southside. Southside is a share club, and there's several of them. We'll, we'll use this for reference. It's 4,200 acres. It's got hills and bottoms, so it's got duck, deer, turkey, fish, and all of the above. And yes, $400,000 is a lot of money. They do financing. A lot of people listening and hunting on public land have $400,000 houses, so it's not like I'm out of the realm of conversation. But it's one of the only ways that a guy with $400,000 can hunt like he's got $10 million. Mm-hmm. Now, is there some negatives? You're basically in a high-end hunting club? Absolutely. But the rules and things are written in such a way to protect the shareholder. You know, So 
I mean, look, you can go and you can kill a limit of mallards at daylight, go and, uh, you know, sit there and watch a game midday at your camp and then go kill a 160-inch buck in the afternoon all right there by your camp, never have to leave the buggy. And it really is. Every time I leave Southside, I have to tell myself I don't have time to hunt this, don't buy a share because <laughs> it really is. It's, it's, I, mean, they, I mean, they get 150, 160, 170-inch camera every year. Some of the big deer they killed on Bolte, they had on camera there. They had great turkey hunt. Uh, and it's it's just, it's a way to hunt big with a, you know, a mediocre budget. I can tell you a story. Last year, I was driving down to the bottoms to make a morning hunt. So I was an hour before daylight or something like that. And I was right up on top of the, the, the bluff above Rodney. Right before I came down, one of the last little roads on south side that cuts up the bank there and there was a doe about to run out in front of me. And this was during the rut. And I, I slowed down, and a little buck kind of come out behind her, and I'm like, y'all get out of the road. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get where I'm going. And a, at about the time I started to pick my speed back up, my lights hit kind of around that cut-in in the bank. And it was right next to a south side gate that was closed. One of the biggest deer I've ever seen in the state of Mississippi was standing there, just, you know, following that, that doe and that little buck. And I'm talking about a deer that would push 190 and he's standing 15 yards from the <laughs> driver's side door of my truck. And I, so they, they got them and, and that, that they've got them in Louisiana too. You know, that, that river bottom produces them. So, uh, you know, I, it's just, Sierra Club just like, it, 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 it is cool. It is a cool area. Yep. Well, um, before we before we wrap up here, let's make sure we give you a, an opportunity to kind of share all of the different things that you uh, we've talked about a lot of it, but the different things you got going on and where people can find and, and follow along with all those things and find out about these properties and your podcast and all that. Well, um, you know, you can find me anywhere on social media, Slate Priest, the Hunting Land Man. If you Google Hunting Land Man and you can't find me, let me know because I spend a lot of money making sure you can find me. Um, you know, kind of history, you know, we started off, we did train the television on the sportsman channel. As everybody knows, the outdoor channel, sportsman channels are dying. We are currently doing Hunt United, which has to do a lot with our real estate and, and hunting and all that's on the Realtree 365 app. Uh, we are working on some big changes as far as our outdoor TV presence. Uh, some really big changes. Uh, gonna, um, gonna probably be announcing those post deer season post ata and shot show and things like that gonna be doing some fun things completely changing it up you know as as our lives grow and businesses grow and families grow so does the tv shows and and the things we're doing i enjoy uh is a good name for me doing what i do in the uh you know in in the uh, real estate world sets me apart um, I call myself the hunting land man. I, I, I try to walk the walk. You know, I don't put on a suit and go show you houses. You know, I, I put on, I load up my yellow buggy behind the Toyota every day and, and put on rubber boots and we go and, you know, when we walk into the woods and we stop and we see scrapes and trails, I'm going to follow them and find out why, just like you are. And, and that is my, my passion is, 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 is helping somebody develop a place and get in the right place. And, and, and look, I've been blessed, and I, and this is not a um, not a braggadocious thing in any way. I've been put in a lot of really cool situations. God, where my family I grew up in, how I grew up, and the timing I grew up, 
I've got a really cool knowledge of, of managing land and deer in our local areas and stuff. And I hope people, when they look at property with me, they see that and they see that, look, I mean, yes, I do it. And I enjoy the money side of this thing, but I really love what I do. I mean, I, I love the chase. I love to be aggressive. You're not going to beat me in the real estate game. Uh, and somebody listening out there who's an agent, if you get up at five and want to work hard, that's fine. I get up at three. I'm going to win. I don't lose at this stuff. And uh, But I love what I do. You know, I like I like the competitiveness of it. I like that when I'm sitting on the buggy with people every day, it's people like us on this podcast. It's people that... Man, they want to get away from the hustles and bustle of the world, and they want to, you know, they want to uh, come and enjoy with their family. And most of these people are, have been blessed in business or, or, or some way, and this is like their, this is their winning the lottery. Like I get to buy a place for my grandkids, I get to buy a place for my family, I get to buy a place I wish I would have grown up hunting my whole life. So it's just really rewarding. It's really cool to shake hands at the closing and say congratulations. Please stay in contact with me. And, and then all year I'm getting deer pictures from people. Hey, Slate, what do you think about this? And would you shoot this one? You know, all this kind of stuff. I just really enjoy what I do. Um, you know, I'm one of the owners of Southern States Realty. Our office is right there in Macomb. I work more in uh, southwest Mississippi and the Feliciana. So East Feliciana, Amick County, West Feliciana, Wilkeson County. That's kind of my core area. But we do stuff. I do stuff all the way up to Vicksburg. Heck, I do stuff all the way to Missouri. But uh, I should be easy to find. We got some cool things, like I said, going on with the TV show. Uh, if you like what you heard on here, definitely check us out. Hunting Land Man Podcast. It's pretty easy to find. Just hit my name or Hunting Land Man Podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast. And it's different than the Louisiana Bowhunter con- uh, Podcast in that. Mine is straight educational from a real estate standpoint. Yes, we do rut reports and turkey reports and deer stories. And, and But really, um, so a lot of people, if their dream is to own property, and you say, Slade, I got this budget, and I don't know, but I don't know where I want to be, uh, where I want to be in, in the state. Okay, go listen to episode three. That's how you learn that. Slade, I want to get my finance in order so I can draw, uh, I can, uh, you know, to, to afford a piece of land one day. Okay, go listen to episode two. Slate, I want to know about how to set up my hunting property. Go listen to the episode. I can't remember now. But that's the reason for the podcast. So in 10 years, when you get raised about, I've already walked you through the process. And you trust what I'm saying. You know what I know what I'm saying. And when you get ready to buy, you're making a good, educated decision. And if you make a good decision, you get the right property, you're going to enjoy it more. And hopefully you're going to kill bigger, bigger and better rack bucks. Yep. Well, I hope for everybody's sake they're able to experience. I hope for my sake I'm able to experience that buying process one day. And uh, we appreciate your support this season on the podcast, and hopefully people are checking out what you do and being entertained a little bit on the uh, Hunt United and checking out the stuff you got listed. And hope you have a good season. I'll be up at ATA, so maybe we'll run into each other. We can catch up there. Yeah, definitely. Let's do lunch or something. A- ATA will be up there. Uh, I think my wife's coming up there with. So that's always a good time. But uh, Definitely got some cool things going on with the with the hunting show coming up. I'm excited to to get it going. I've uh, got a lot to do between now and ATA. Yep. Well, Kyler, you got anything else before we wrap it up? No, man, I'm good. Thanks for coming you, on, Slade. Wonder if you fell asleep over there for a minute. No, I'm I'm good. I, I uh, <laughs> soaking it up. I'm listening to y'all. Awesome. Well, Slade, we're thinking about Tigerland. Yeah, he's that's what it is. He's over, he's over there googling Tigerland stuff on Instagram. Absolutely, man. I'm 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 scrolling through uh, 
through their Instagram right now. All right, guys. Well, Slave, we appreciate it again. Thank y'all for listening. Hey, make sure check out Louisiana Bow Hunter if you need a last minute stocking stuff or something. We got our hats are well in stock. We got some other stuff out there you can check out. And if you've purchased any scree gear this year, make sure you send us that review and getting that drawing for some free gear. And uh, Kyler and I, we're going hunting this weekend. That's what we're doing. We're and we gonna, got some great weather for it. Too. We got some great weather. We're gonna get together and make a hunt probably record a podcast and talk about how that hunt's going so until then thank y'all so much for your support thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week thank you for listening to this week's episode of the louisiana bow hunter podcast if you have anybody you'd like to hear on the show reach out to us at info at louisianabowhunter.com and if you want to help support louisiana bow hunter go by your local archery shop and pick up some merchandise if you don't have any at your local shop let us know and we'll reach out to them or pick up your gear at louisianabowhunter.com and we'll ship it out to you same day see you next week